Hello, podcast fans, and welcome, new listeners, to another episode of Grassroots Radio. When I look at the political landscape and the economic landscape of the world, I really have a difficult time accepting that this is what life should be. We had so many concerns about education, technology, agriculture, barbuda, health, the environment. You, you will be so surprised as to what they are engaged in. If we can do that, we can walk on that path, we will find a lot of solutions, we'll find a lot of adventures, we'll find a lot of answers. All this and more, right here on Grassroots Radio. I'm your host, Unique Bird, back from a little personal hiatus. This week, speaking with 22-year-old Kieran Murdoch, who is no stranger to the airwaves. Kieran has been a reporter with the former Observer Media Group, now NewsCo, where he was also a news and program producer and sometimes even a program host. We talk a lot of politics in this interview and it runs a bit to the negative end of the spectrum, which isn't normally what the show is about. However, my team and I felt it was important to get this particular perspective out there because In all honesty, this is how a lot of people perceive the political situation in our country at present, and it's a reality that we cannot afford to look away from or ignore. That said, I'm hoping that you guys will learn something from this podcast. I know I definitely did, and I'm looking forward to hearing the discussions in our WhatsApp group. If you're not already a member of the new Grassroots WhatsApp group, Grassroots Connection, and you would like to be included, please send us a direct message on whatever social media platform you are comfortable using. We are on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. Our handle on all three platforms is GrassrootsANU. Tell us a bit about yourself and why you would like to join the group, and we will take it from there. And now we're going to take the interview from here. Ladies and gentlemen, Kieran Murdoch. All right. uh, My name is Kieran Murdoch. I am 22 years old. I'll actually be 23 towards the end of the year. Um, I'm an Antiguan and Barbudan. I've lived here for most of my life. And in terms of my work, uh, I've been a reporter uh, for all of my professional life. I started working when I left Uh, the Antigua State College, that would have been in 2015, if I'm remembering correctly, hopefully I am, but that would have been in 2015. Uh, At that point in time, I was not uh, sure exactly what I should study, or what I should have studied, rather, uh, if I had gone to university at the time. Uh, So I uh, went job-seeking. The Observer Radio and Newspaper was familiar to me because I had been in and out of their studio uh, a few times for uh, a program they used to have on Fridays called uh, Youth Connect. They still have it, uh, and they now call it Youthology. Uh, but at that time, I was uh, exposed to media and radio, uh, having had the opportunity to have uh, been a guest or have been a, a, a panel part of the, the team of young people that would speak on that program mm-hmm. um, in those years. And so when I went job seeking, I just thought you know it would have been a um, sensible, or you could even call it an easy idea, uh, to have uh, made an application there. 
Uh, and once I started there, I sort of fell into um, the various roles that uh, I would have found between the radio and the newspaper um, quite, uh, quite easily, I should say. Um, I say easily, but uh, this is not to say that, of course, for the first few months of, of, of the job, it wasn't um, extreme teething. Mm-hmm. But uh, eventually I, I got accustomed to it and I, I developed an appreciation for um, the actual practice of reporting uh, and of uh, dealing in media. And you mentioned just now that you've lived in Antigua and Barbuda for most of your life. Where else have you lived besides Antigua? Uh, perhaps I shouldn't have said that. Perhaps I shouldn't have said most. Probably it was just in my way of speaking. But I've lived there for all of my life. I haven't done all that much traveling. I've been to places in the Caribbean. I've been to Canada and the U.S. I've been to one or two countries in Europe, which was just a that was a specific trip that um, I, I was able to do when I was in third form as a member of a, a scout troop. Uh, but I've been outside um, with vacation, church trip, that sort of thing. But I've lived here for, for all of my life. Now you are studying at the University of the West Indies. So I guess now you are actually kind of living outside of Antigua in Trinidad. What made you decide to go to university at this point in your career? And what are you studying and why? Well, I made the decision to go to university, honestly, because it's something I had put off for um, going on three years. And um, I began to worry that, uh, you know, if I didn't go, I would never go, uh, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm studying now is not necessarily something that I uh, had any sort of concrete plan as to what it would enable me to do in the future in terms of an income. Um, But I chose to study politics and international relations. uh, And I'm actually hoping to uh, switch that to politics and economics because I was, I mean, I suppose this is what happens at university, but you go, you're introduced to various things and you develop Mm -hmm. different likings. So I was introduced to uh, one or two introductory courses in economics uh, in my first year. And uh, that has encouraged me now that I'm going back for my second year to see if I could possibly uh, make that part of my focus. Um, but yeah, in, in the first place I would have gone, I would have started in August, I should say September really, of 2018, and I would have done so. Um, I suppose I was kind of getting tired of uh, the daily grind of work, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I, I wanted to go to university to see what it was about. I wanted to gain the experience, and um, it had just, uh, enough time had passed to me. There was enough of a gap um, that I sort of said, you know, I am willing to take this course of study. And that course of study specifically I chose because of my experience in reporting uh, with the radio, with the newspaper, where I was exposed to, uh, well, a lot of government and a lot of politics, Mm -hmm. um, which sort of helped develop an interest in me for uh, understanding the way in which government should work as opposed to the way it does work. That was going to be one of my questions was whether your experience in the media had an effect on you deciding to go deeper into politics. And so what are some of the the things that you're already pointing to about how the government works in Antigua versus how you think it should actually work? Can you give some examples of that? Hmm. I suppose that's a, it's a it's an expansive uh, uh, discussion to be had. Speaking from the perspective of... of um, someone who has been a reporter, uh, you could immediately hone in on the aspect of uh, transparency, the aspect of accountability and how uh, government reports its activity to the public mm-hmm. and how it uh, presents information and how willingly it makes information uh, about its decisions, its spending, 
uh, and uh, it's even its failures, really, and that's actually the most critical part. Uh, mm-hmm. How readily it makes that information available to the public to enable the public uh, within the, the broader framework of a, an organic democracy uh, to actually criticize the government, uh, to actually put pressure on the government to remedy things that it is doing which are not optimal, which are not delivering the best results, or which are downright wrong. Um, in Antigua and Barbuda, um, I, I don't think anybody can deny that we, we don't do that to the extent that we should. Um, I'm, I'm not even sure that we do that to any extent at all uh, in terms of that, that transparency which I discussed. Um, and so that's something that I would have noticed off the bat um, working for uh, uh, the newspaper, working for the radio. And it's something that would have developed my interest in uh, just sort of studying politics in general. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, from my experience, it is, it is, it is like pulling teeth to, to get certain information from the government. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about a department, a minister, uh, a statutory corporation. Um, many times the information that you will readily get is information that is not derogatory. Uh, however, the very test of a transparent organization is the fact that you are, in fact, able to get information that could potentially be derogatory. It, it's there for you to see so that you can actually look at it and you can say, well, you don't appear to be doing very well here. You appear to be uh, spending money wildly in this area, not delivering results, and uh, we would like to see better. Um, in fact, in terms of reporting in general, we, we, we don't necessarily have a, a culture within our government, within our society that demands, uh, and it, it's broader than government. I mean, because in my experience with the newspaper and the radio has uh, shown me that it's a similar situation in private organizations. It could be companies, uh, it could be NGOs, it could be church groups. There is a, a general uh, absence of that culture of accountability, of reporting, um, of transparency in that individuals must be accountable for what they do. They must be accountable for w- what they spend. They are responsible to report back on what they spend and the results of having spent that money. Uh, they're required to spend it transparently. Um, they are accountable to the rules that govern the office which they hold, which is something that is extremely critical, especially when it comes to government, because you will often find in situations in government that uh, persons are acting beyond the scope of their authority, but the culture is not such that their subordinates, their superiors, people around them, and the society at large stops and says, what you are doing is beyond the remit of your authority. Uh, So, I mean, yeah, as an example, uh, just from the experience of reporting, you you could take that. Mm-hmm. And this is something that you've, of course, experienced firsthand being a reporter and having to go out and kind of find this information and just, I'm going to paraphrase what you said and call it a culture of secrecy, because that's kind of the opposite of being transparent when you have a responsibility to be transparent. There's all these roadblocks in the way. And even though we have laws about freedom of information and freedom of the press, and they seem to not be enacted like in real they're on the books but in real life it doesn't really function that way yeah that is that is most definitely the case um i mean we have a freedom of information act on the books which is something that um i would have had to have made reference to a number of times uh in my experience reporting uh we also have a prevention of corruption act which to be honest with you uh, in my opinion is not worth the paper it's written on 
Um, and neither is the Freedom of Information Act, really. Uh, neither of them are stringently enforced. And even if you go into those two pieces of legislation, um, I mean, I haven't been into them in quite some time, but I, I did have the necessity to go into them, different parts of them, uh, for different stories, for different things that I would have followed up over the, the last three, four years um, for news purposes. And, you know, you, 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 you generally get the sense that uh, regardless of which administration you're dealing with, whether you're dealing with the current administration, a previous administration, administration before that, there really is no uh, serious uh, sense. There is no serious approach. There's no serious mood towards the issue of transparency, integrity, and corruption. Uh, and so you, you go into um, the Freedom of Information Act, you find that it has stipulated certain things. It talks about a commission. It talks about certain rights. It talks about certain requests. But in practice, the Freedom of Information Act, for example, is not something in my experience that their government at any stage has made any great effort to um, sensitize government workers about, to sensitize its public service, all the various branches of its public service that work in various departments and statutory corporations. Uh, the idea that we have as a, as a state a Freedom of Information Act, and therefore we want to develop a freedom of information culture Mm -hmm. And uh, you, as, as, as public servants, uh, will be expected, falling in line with this freedom of information culture, uh, to make information readily available, to, 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 to not have that culture of secrecy, as you use that phrase, mm -hmm. uh, and to be ready to, even when it is derogatory information, which is often the information that you can never get, mm -hmm. uh, to make it available, to make it public, because that is the nature of how the state should run. Um, and so you don't find that. I mean, even you talk about the Prevention of Corruption Act. I mean, uh, it, it, it is one of the most comical cases that I think I've ever encountered is that we have a, a, a Prevention of Corruption Act and we also have a Integrity and in Public Life Act, for example, mm -hmm. uh, which between them create an integrity commission. And to the layman's reading, give that integrity commission the independence to investigate allegations of corruption once it is satisfied that there are grounds to do so. Um, you have in its current composition uh, the Integrity Commission as it is now uh, being staffed with individuals who have put forward the public view or the public position that from their interpretation and reading of the legislation, they do not have such independent power. Uh, they are not empowered by the legislation, according to them, to, ind to independently investigate something once it, 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 it comes to their, their attention. So, for instance... So, why are they um, there? That's a, that's a, that's a, that is a fantastic question. <laughs> but one story, for instance, the Associated Press. Uh, the Associated Press ran a story about a... I don't remember the man's name, but he is somebody involved in opera in New York. Um, and the story, I believe, ran between yesterday and the day before. And the, the story from the Associated Press was, uh, it was an investigative one, but they had gathered the accusations of a number of women um, who had accused this man of sexual harassment over his career. And they published this story. And then I noticed another story where the, the, the opera or the, the, the company that manages or uh, perhaps the, I don't know if it was like the, the, the broader organ that, that oversees uh, that aspect of arts, of the arts industry in, in New York, 
but there was a response which said this will be investigated based on the story that was published. That's just an example. Um, you would not have something like that in Antigua and Barbuda as it relates to a government authority or the Integrity Commission. So, for instance, you could publish uh, in any newspaper. Um, let's say we had a newspaper called The Guardian. You could publish on the front page of The Guardian that Ewan Murdoch, uh, who is a minister of government, uh, has been accused of, of stealing $50 million from the Treasury. Uh, and within the, the, the story, what you will see, let's say the, the, they provide evidence, they provide receipts, they provide testimony from people at banks saying that, yes, he took this money, it's here, it's still here. He, we even have recordings of him discussing his, his corrupt activity. Um, the Integrity Commission's position uh, is that in the face of that, it can and would do nothing. It must wait on a member of the public to bring a complaint to take note of that evidence and bring it to the Integrity Commission in the form of a complaint, and only then would it be able to act. And I must tell you that in the, the, the history of this current Integrity Commission, um, they have not acted feverishly on the complaints which I am aware that they have received. They are complaints which they have received, which they have, uh, well, I know of one complaint they received, which they acted on initially, and then it came to a great pause. And there was another complaint which they had received, which they uh, sort of rejected, saying it was not served properly. Uh, so that's that's the sort of situation that you 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 run into in terms of that that well that 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 goes beyond a, 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 the the a lack of accountability and transparency. That that's sort of just blatantly not doing your job. Right. Okay. If we take a wider view of that problem and potentially why it could be occurring. One of the things I notice in Antigua is that a lot of these positions like on these commissions are filled by appointment from political persons. So yeah. if the whole reason that you have this position in the first place is because of your existing relationship, professional or personal, with someone in a position of power, then even though your job is to kind of keep that power in check, you have this conflict of interest is basically what it is that because you're in this position now you're going to use it to protect the person who helped you to get to that position because you want to maintain your power so do you think that there is a need for us to select these commissions in a different way that doesn't bias them so much in one direction or another I would agree with that, and I would also go further to say that um, Antiguan Barbuda, from my uh, uh, thinking just over the last couple of years, uh, is desperately in need of uh, a number of constitutional amendments, uh, uh, perhaps even a, a, a broad constitutional reform, and also uh, uh, reforms in terms of uh, corporate governance and the way that, as you say, appointments, management, and things like that are done. Uh, we have, for all of our existence politically, uh, we have maintained a system where um, one party, regardless of which party that is in, in government, um, tends to have a, a level of absolute or total control mm -hmm. over the machinery of government. Now, it is debatable to what extent this is necessary when it comes to getting the government business done, enacting policy, and also, uh, you know, just carrying out a, a change of affairs, because that is what people tend to elect governments for. Uh, I mean, when you elect uh, the, the same administration back into power, 
uh, you may be satisfied that things are going well. If you elect a new administration, uh, arguably the basis on, on, on which a population would elect a new administration is because they want radical change. They want things okay. to change. Okay. And so you'd want to have a governments that have the power to, to uh, uh, affect change. You, yeah. you, you wouldn't want to isolate government so much from various different things, whether it be the police, whether it be uh, anti-corruption bodies, whether it be uh, the public service. You wouldn't want to isolate it so much that coming into office in a situation where all those mentioned things require serious change, that a government's hands are tied and it says, well, these are bodies that are just totally independent. They're, they're totally isolated from us. Our policies really can't affect them. And so whatever problems they are experiencing are not things which we can actively address. Um, you don't want to have that situation. But what we have is the other extreme. Mm-hmm. Where, uh, and I, I say the other extreme, but the other extreme, it, it, it doesn't necessarily manifest itself in law so much as it does in practice. Uh, it, it often does manifest itself in law. But anyway, we have the other extreme where, as I said, it's, a, it's a, the nature of total control. We, we, we seem to have a political system where um, we allow whichever ruling administration and the leader of that administration, which in our case would be the prime minister, um, to make appointments to staff offices um, sort of carte blanche. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 in, and in too many instances. So for instance, you, 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 you let's, let's go to the constitution, for example, and this is just my personal opinion. I know some people disagree with me, but if you go to the constitution, I mean, we have provisions in our constitution that stipulate uh, that the prime minister um, can veto basically um, the individual who would be nominated as the commissioner of police. Now we can't mm-hmm. select the commissioner of police, but the constitution provides that if the police service commission, uh, and by the way, the police service commission would be individuals who are all appointed by the prime minister anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so mm-hmm. I mean, you can you can imagine you know the tentacles yeah. are long. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, you have that, and then you have uh, the provision that a, a prime minister, a sitting prime minister, can veto the nomination of a, of a police commissioner. So, for instance, the commission come and says, comes and says, sorry, uh, that Joe Bob uh, is the best person. We want him to be the commissioner of police. The prime minister has the power to say, well, no, 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 Joe Bob is not the guy. Bring me somebody else. I can't tell you who it is, but Joe Bob, no, I, I, won't, I won't tolerate Joe Bob. Uh, we also have uh, provisions where I think that applies to both the commissioner and the deputy commissioner. We also have provisions for uh, senior ranks, such as assistant commissioner. Um, the prime minister must be consulted about those senior ranks. Now, one could argue that uh, these are necessary um, uh, stipulations because, again, you could come back to that argument where you say, well, look, uh, a government has been elected into office. It must have the power to effect change within the, uh, the law enforcement system. And it cannot affect that change if it is unable to uh, indicate a, in some small way, in some partial way, its preference for the best persons to lead that law enforcement system. So how can I, as the leader of the country, expect great reform within the police, if that's what I'm promising, if I, 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 I have absolutely no control whatsoever over who the hierarchy of the police force is? Now, one could make that argument. But what you also have coming into that mix in Antigua and Barbuda, as you do in frankly all Caribbean countries, is a very tribal politics where it is the nature, and this now goes from what the law does to what the individual does, it is the nature of individuals in political positions and individuals with political power to appoint persons loyal to them, to appoint their friends, mm-hmm. to appoint their supporters, uh, to, to, to high office 
uh, into various positions to support them and to carry out their policy. And in many instances, these persons are either biased in their favor, uh, these persons sometimes lack integrity, uh, these persons are sometimes totally unqualified, uh, and that has sort of become the norm. So, I mean, you mentioned uh, things like commissions. I mean, we have developed uh, and boards. We have, we have developed a culture. And it's not a, just here, of course. It's, it's throughout the Caribbean. But we have developed a culture, um, and it has been the culture for, for decades, uh, where there's a, a whole host of positions um, on statutory cooperation boards in the Senate, and various independent offices, or I shouldn't say independent, but various individual offices, if you'd call them that, they're sort of created by legislation to do specific tasks, and they're not mm -hmm. uh, so much under the complete direction and control of a ministry, offices like that, uh, which just serve as rewards, really. I mean, you get in, uh, uh, let's say that, um, you know, you have just become prime minister, you, you hand them out to your various supporters, your, your friends, and so on. Uh, we do the same thing with, with, with diplomatic positions as well. So you have this pool. Uh, so you have the Senate, you have the boards of statutory cooperations, you have these special offices, commissioners, uh, and you have diplomatic appointments. That really and truly, uh, some of them go to individuals who are totally deserving, individuals who are totally competent and totally qualified, and then others go to individuals who are the complete opposite. And the functioning of government suffers as a result. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned the diplomatic appointments, and I know there's been a lot of controversy in the last few years about us having Antiguan Barbuda having diplomats who are not Antiguan. Nobody's ever heard of them, but they have our passports. They've been appointed as special economic envoys, things of that nature. And then they're traveling overseas and getting into trouble to the point where allegedly we now have to have all our passports recalled and everyone needs to get new ones because... The ones that exist now are like sketchy and there isn't a lot of information about what's happening with that, why it is, but it's now become an expense for everyone with an Antiguan passport. So yeah, I guess what, being someone in the media, what role do you think or what responsibilities do you think the media and journalistic fraternity have in terms of highlighting these issues and I don't know, I don't want to use the word foment, but to encourage the public to take a closer look at what's happening in terms of governance of the country and to start to apply some of this pressure to bring well, about I, changes, yeah. I would say that um, the role of the media in that, in that regard is critical. Uh, and the reason I'd say it's critical is because um, you really don't have a self-check mechanism that operates properly within our government. Uh, there are a number of self-check mechanisms that should operate in any government without the need for an external entity that mm -hmm. audits, checks, reviews what the government does. Do you uh, think that we ever had those in place in our government and that they were removed, or is it a situation where they were never in place? No, well, they are in place in law. They just are not in place in practice. Okay, for instance, um, for instance one of the greatest self-check mechanisms that any government has in a Westminster system is, is an opposition. Um, mm. And let's be frank, Antigua don't have no opposition. <laughs> Antigua's opposition is a joke. <laughs> so yes. uh, both, both in terms of its parliamentary activity and in terms of the actual parties that currently comprise opposition to the government, you know, I mean, what are we talking about? We're talking about uh, a group of individuals who 
are not doing exactly what it is they should be doing and have not um, over the last however many years that, that I have been paying attention to affairs because I've been uh, reporting from the radio and from the newspaper, have not done a particularly good job of reviewing and auditing the government. I mean, we, we, we have a, a leader of the opposition presently. And I don't mean to be harsh, but I think sometimes we have to be harsh because nobody wants to be harsh. Mm-hmm. We have a leader of the opposition presently. He really should not be leader of the opposition. His, 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 his abilities publicly have not, have not satisfied what any citizen of the country should desire as a leader of the opposition. I mean, his maiden speech in parliament was five minutes. It was all of five minutes. And again, I, I say that I'm, I'm honestly trying not to be harsh, but I find that, you know, it, it's something that we avoid saying. When, when you have individuals in places who, for whatever reason, are clearly not the best to be in those positions, and everybody can sort of dance around it and they tiptoe. And they say, oh, yeah, and honestly, not only just not the best, but not functioning at all. I mean, you could not be the best for something and still be trying. Trying. But I see really a lack of function. Yeah, so you like, have... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was saying, so you have, a, you have a, 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 a leader of the opposition, for example. One of the things that uh, comes up from time to time in, in discussions that, that you, you have on radio is uh, institutions like um, a public accounts committee. Uh, you have a public accounts committee which should function, which is historically a committee of parliament. Um, and this is coming out of the, the, the history of the British parliament and other parliaments that have followed that tradition. Uh, a public accounts committee, which is a permanent committee of parliament, which reviews the government's accounts, basically audits the government, mm-hmm. uh, and is traditionally led by the leader of the opposition. And we have fallen into a culture of successive administrations ignoring the role of the Public Accounts Committee. Now, my argument is, uh, and this is, again, regardless of what, uh, uh, which I should say, administration is in power. My argument is that, you know, if you are the opposition and you are running into a roadblock from the government in order to put together the Public Accounts Committee, well, you have to scream that from the mountaintop from the day that you get into office until the day that you leave. I mean, you have to make that clear. You, You can't just lie back and say, well, you know, I mean... You know, it's such a difficult thing to do because, you know, perhaps the current administration doesn't make it easy for us to do so, whatever. I mean, you, you don't get paid to do that. You get paid to, as I said, scream it from a mountaintop from the day that you get into office until the day that you leave. And if you're not doing that, well, then you're not doing your job. Mm-hmm. Very true. And I guess one of the, the reasons often cited why there is this lack of functional opposition is that when it all comes down to it, the politicians, regardless of what side of the aisle they sit on, are at the end of the day, friends, you know, boon companions, well met. And so there is a reluctance to rock the boat, as it were, because that could then cause issues for them in other areas. I find that's very true. I find that's very true. But I would also I would also put in to say, or I, I would I would pull back on that a little bit to say, as much as it is true that you do have um, a sort of a, 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 a one fraternity, if you will, um, amongst politicians, the, uh, whether they're cut from the same cloth, whether they come from the same union, whether they, 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 you know, they, 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 they got into politics together before they split into different parties, and they all know each other and they all associate with each other. And in the background business dealings of Antigua and Barbuda, they do business with each other in their, their, their commercial capacities. And so at the end of the day, even though they have a, a public 
political persona, which is uh, against each other um, in private, uh, it's a different situation. Not, not to say it's always the case that they are, they are chummy, chummy friends from different parties, but uh, it, it just is not the sort of antagonism that we genuine a rivalry that is, of course, presented to the public. That is true to an extent. But what I also find is that um, more so than that is the fact that the culture, the political culture is such that we have become numb. We have become, uh, I don't know, we have become fused into this way of thinking that mm-hmm. suggests that it is what it is, and there's really no, there's no point in attempting to change it. People get tired. Even the opposition gets tired. Um, and that doesn't matter which opposition it is between which administration. If you, if, if, you are, if you are in a situation where something is what it is, uh, and when every, time, every time you attempt to challenge it, you run into a problem, uh, and perhaps you're victimized and you find consequences, after a while, it begins to weigh you down and you just decide that, you know, this is just the way things function. So you find that there are so many things that go wrong that we no longer even recognize as things going wrong because mm-hmm. it, it's just the way things It's just function. normal. So it, it, you know, beyond it, it, so it, it sort of goes beyond the possibility that you know uh, individuals on opposing sides of the aisle may actually have good relations, and it sort of goes into the fact that individuals on opposing sides of the aisle they 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 they, they have never been able to get anywhere in keeping each other in check, and they've just accepted that, and so it, now it's just not even a thought. Mm-hmm. It's just I'm going to do what I can get away with when it's my turn, and then when it's your turn, I'll let you have the same courtesy i guess yeah i'd like to say that that's um i like to say that that's uh, a bit morbid but it's the truth oh man it's such a complicated thing right and you mentioned the tribalism like the tribal kind of politics and the fact that people are kind of divided into these camps. And so it's a matter of, it's more like, it's more like a sport, sporting event, right? Elections are kind of just an opportunity for you to cheer for your team and help them get into the position of power. And after that, we just kind of turn our attentions to distractions and entertainment until it's the next time to cheer for your team. Yeah. What I have actually realized, um, I think it goes, it goes deeper than that. What I've realized is that, um, uh, yes, there is tribalism, but um, as much as I have initially found it, I had initially found it quite uh, easy and simple to, uh, I mean, blame if you want, um, you know, each of us individually as average citizens um, in terms of how we interact with our politicians and in terms of the standards of accountability that we hold them to. Mm-hmm. Um, but having had the opportunity to interact further with the general public uh, for news purposes uh, and on political questions, I have come to realize that uh, people genuinely cannot be expected to do that which is not in their best interest. Um, and so what I have discovered is that really and truly, um, a lot of the tribalism is not as condemnable as it would seem to be mm-hmm. on the level of those who are uh, doing well economically. Yes, you could probably condemn it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the level of those who genuinely struggle, and, and that, of course, in Antigua and Barbuda is, is a broad uh, cross section of people, 
um, for them, they genuinely uh, subsist and benefit with that tribal politics as a part of the way they live. So you will find individuals who um, uh, they have a, a government position um, because of that tribal politics. They have a, a job because of that tribal politics. There's, there's, there's income, there's, there's bread on their table because of that politics. Mm-hmm. And whereas from the outside, what it, we see politicians give out, especially around election time, mm-hmm. um, cash and, and gifts and so on, uh, they often are giving them out to individuals who, who uh, genuinely need these things and genuinely uh, appreciate these things. Mm-hmm. And whereas somebody may, you know, stand from outside and say, well, you know, what's going on here is, 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 uh, is trivial. What's going on here uh, is, is, is the persons who uh, should be rejecting these things. And uh, you'd, you'd want to say that. You'd want to say that very easily um, and without complication that people should just, people should just, they should reject these gifts. They should reject uh, the partisanship, the tribalism. But it has become such a, a deep part of the way that we operate and the way that we live that uh, I realize that it, 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 it would be a very difficult task to expect people to do otherwise. Now, I'm not trying to excuse their behavior. Yeah. Uh, I'm just trying to say that um, it, it's it, a reality. Con- yeah, condemning it is, 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 for me, is not as easy as it used to be because you see people who are, uh, they, 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 they genuinely need. And um, this, this way of living where uh, my party is in power and uh, I am able to get first preference in terms of whether it's housing, first preference in terms of uh, utilities forgiveness, first preference in terms of uh, uh, this, that, or the other. I'm able to get first preference in terms of uh, back pay being given to me from the treasury. I'm able to get uh, some manner of uh, government work. I'm able to get uh, this favor or that favor from my MP, and it becomes a, a legitimate part of the way they live, such that, of course, you have areas of the country where uh, you you have a let's say you have a particular uh, member of parliament, and you could look at photographs of that area of the country from forty years ago, and you could look at photographs of that area of the country today, and you could say, well, my God, nothing much has changed. What has this individual been doing for the last forty years? Um, and you'd think that on that basis, that individual should have been carted out of that constituency a long time ago by voters. But if you go to each and every single one of those members of the constituency, uh, that MP knows their names, he knows their families. Um, he has secured jobs for a great many of them. He has acted like a bank. Uh, he has yeah. become an institution unto himself and unto that area, such that, uh, you know, I mean, it, 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 to expect individuals without being appreciative of that culture, and it's a negative culture, but to expect individuals to do better simply on the basis of a, a, a very dry and broad view of this is right, that is wrong. Um, it's not something I'm able to do anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that because the other thing about the condemnation is that it doesn't change anyone's mind. But now that we have you know, some younger people coming into politics and we have a new generation of Antiguans and Barbudans who are a lot more aware, they've traveled outside of Antigua, they've lived abroad, they've studied abroad, and they have a different view of how things can and should be done. Do you see any places where that old mindset is starting to shift and change? Uh, To be frank and honest with you, absolutely not. Um, And again, I know that sounds terrifyingly morbid, but um, it's the truth. 
Uh, I personally find uh, that individuals, especially young individuals, and it's been happening over generations, um, each new generation has the tendency to, to think or to say that uh, we have a young generation which is going to do better, is going to think differently, and is going to make things better. Um, at some point, at some point, the current generation of politicians, which we have now, were that generation. Uh, what I see in my experience is either two of things, two, one of two things happening, sorry, one of two things happening. And that is when you have uh, young people, particularly, who recognize that there is a better way to manage national affairs, uh, there are uh, uh, changes, positive changes that need to take place politically in their country, economically in their country, socially in their country, and they don't see it happening, they're just going to move. And that has been, I mean, that has, that, that's, just, that's just been the reality. Whether they're going to move to another Caribbean country, whether they're going to move to Canada, whether they're going to move to the United States, or whether in this day and age they're going to take the opportunity to move uh, to all the other different places that uh, are much more open now for Caribbean people to move to China, places in Europe, even places in Africa, even places in the Middle East, Australia. They're just going to leave. Um, and I think that's one of the saddest things about um, the fact that you, when you have a, a, a country which uh, is developing, it's classified as a developing country and it's thought of as a, as a quote-unquote third world country. And you have within the leadership of that country, uh, through successive administrations, the inability to realize that the way in which we carry out national affairs and our inability to use the prime opportunity which we are given, which is leadership of the nation and lawmaking powers of the nation, our inability to use that opportunity to make the social, political, and economic conditions better is driving intelligent young people away from the country. They go overseas, they are amazed at what they see overseas in terms of just how society functions. Mm -hmm. And it's not, not necessarily specifically about government, uh, just socially, a greater deal of intelligent, progressive thinking among members of the society on social issues, uh, on political issues, and economic um, prosperity. They don't necessarily feel inclined to come back to a nation where A, they don't have that, and B, uh, attempting to get there becomes so difficult because they are aware of the obstacles to that. Um, yep. So you either have individuals who will leave, or B, you have individuals who will be in the country, and being that the, the economic, social, and, and political situation in the country is not ideal, you have individuals who will say, well, look, I'm just going to toss in my hand with whichever faction seems to be the best at the time, which is, again, what a lot of bright young people do. Uh, and in so doing, they themselves then become um, the next generation of leaders who perpetuate the exact same behavior, uh, and the country gets nowhere. I, again, I, I admit it's very, very morbid, but I, I tell you the honest truth. I, th those are the only two things I see happening. Either A, you get fed up with it and leave, and we all have enough relatives and friends and cousins and family that we can point to as examples of that, mm -hmm. uh, if not ourselves. I'm one of those people. Exactly. <laughs> or B, you are present in the country, uh, you desire a much higher standard of living, and the shortcut which is presented to you of membership in a, a, a partisan clan or a partisan group which shares certain benefits amongst themselves unfairly uh, as opposed to directing their energies to the general advancement of the population at large. You say to yourself, well, look, I'm a young person. I've grown up in a certain social condition. I don't wish, and, and this is a totally fair desire. I don't wish and I don't have any desire to 
maintain that level at which I grew up. I want to advance. I want to advance socially. I want to advance economically. I want to have some money. I want to have some property. I want to do well in life. I don't want to struggle. And if it is that joining this clan or this group is the best way to do that so that I can experience these unfair benefits, and if it is that I have to sacrifice some of uh, you know, the morals or the, the, the principles which I had in order to do so, I will do it. And the reason that I'm so willing to do that is because other legitimate avenues have not been presented to me um, or have not been made as attractive to me simply as a, a citizen of the country. That I, I, I know to myself that economic opportunities have been created for me that I could take advantage of, that I don't actually need to join this political clan. Maybe then I make a hundred million disappear Then me act like me no care What you bought me back in there Because it's a reality But I've spoken a lot of politics uh, Throughout this entire interview But um, I suppose that's, that's, just, that's just What my mind revolves around these days okay. I guess I'm a bit curious About your like family background Because I think that also Has a lot to do with How you end up going in life So is your family like prominent family on the island are they more you know your average Antiguan family tell me about that um my father is a permanent secretary well i should say now he is an advisor in the prime minister's office um for most of his professional career however he was a permanent secretary in the ministry of foreign affairs and uh, functioned as well in an ambassadorial capacity uh so yes you uh cannot deny that mm-hmm. uh being the uh, son of somebody who was in government uh, has largely affected my uh, sort of a professional orientation and interest in affairs of government. Um, my mother is an attorney. Uh, and again, uh, government and law coming together would have mm-hmm. sort of uh, oriented me towards an interest in the affairs of the state and how they function. Um, yeah, so if you were to point to an influence for me even uh, having been at the radio and at the newspaper at Observer Radio and on the Daily Observer and my interest while I was there in covering political stories and covering stories that had to do with uh, the executive had to do with parliament had to do with statutory corporations had to do with partisan politics and things like that uh, that interest uh, would have been uh, sparked by of course the background of my parents and, and their, their professional work Okay, let's talk about some of the highlights of your time as a reporter what were some of the, the most interesting stories, let's say, that you worked on while you were yeah, at Observer? Uh, well, um, if I had to name two highlights in terms of just events that I had to cover, mm-hmm. uh, you know, several stories might have come out of them, but just events uh, would have been our last election in March of 2018, as well as um, uh, going to Barbuda to look at the, the damage and the effect of, of Hurricane Irma. Um, the last election that we just had was an interesting experience. Uh, there were uh, many people at Observer, and most of the people at Observer were there long before me, and so they've covered several elections. That was my first election, yeah, of course, covering it, mm-hmm. right. um, but it was also my first election, um, just being aware of an election. I mean, of course, I would have been alive for several other elections. I just really would not have been paying attention to what was going on. Okay. Um, but the last, the last election in March of 2018 was an election, uh, Interesting and an enlightening experience in terms of uh, seeing political mobilization, seeing um, the campaign machinery of politics going into play, 
seeing uh, the sort of uh, statistical analysis that tends to come in because you know that parties bring in various posters to do yes. things. Um, yeah, sort of just sort of gauging the opinions, the desires, the needs, and the requirements of the public uh, as opposed to what their, 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 their political parties are offering. Uh, you, you also sort of get an opportunity to train your own perception and analysis because you might look at things uh, before the results and you may think, well, just from the field of things, I think that uh, this may be the likely outcome and that it may differ slightly. Uh, it may differ greatly, and you may say to yourself, "Well, you know, here's a lesson for me to say that it's not always. It doesn't look as uh, it's not always as it looks." Uh, and of course, for future for future elections, um, uh, one would have that 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 knowledge, that that ability to say, "Well, you know, simply because uh, you know people are saying this, or these people feel like this, or whatever, is not really an indication of who is going to win, what success is going to happen there." Um, Mm-hmm. So yeah, do you find it. that being a part of that whole scene and observing the election, do you think that it's given you uh, a much higher critical faculty of discerning like what is good information, what's misinformation, what should be paid attention to and what shouldn't be? Um, I, I, I would say so. I mean, it was a short election. It was only uh, it was it was three weeks to, from uh, from the, the the announcement of the date of elections to the actual elections because the, yes. the sitting prime minister at the time gave the um, the minimum notice that he's allowed to give under the constitution. Mm-hmm. Again, which is something you should probably uh, well, not you you, but uh, we <laughs> should uh, consider nationally um, as an issue for reform. But anyway, <laughs> um, it was it was a short it was a short election. I, I was more so sort of interested in the, the the sort of activity and the sort of energy that went into it. I mean, when you saw uh, the the things that people are willing to say on the platform, the things, the gifts that people are willing to give out, the um, the, the 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 feedback from members of the public, uh, a mixed feedback about how they feel about progress, how they feel they're being treated. Uh, you, 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 I don't know. It's 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 such an it's such an enlightening experience to get it all at once in that giant mesh. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and to see the way in which political parties function. I mean, for instance, I I I I, I tell people that on the night of the election, after the result was declared and the ruling party won a resounding victory, um, I was amongst the crowd at their victory rally, which I believe was held. Uh, it was somewhere down in St. John's. And um, half the crowd couldn't vote. Fifty oh. percent of the individuals in attendance at that rally were not old enough to vote, and that yeah. is something that goes to show you the 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 level of strategy, the perception that the party puts uh-huh. in—not just that party, but all parties—the level of strategy that politically goes into an election. The reason that fifty percent of the crowd was turned out. Um, in, of course, their, their, their party paraphernalia. Uh, but as I say, frankly, it looked to me like they couldn't vote. The reason for that was because um, the party has, of course, encouraged them to come out. Uh, they're probably members of the party's youth movement or youth section. Mm-hmm. But the party knows that in the next four years, they will be able to vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was an interesting ahead. Yeah. Yes, yeah, that was an interesting experience for me. And you see that parties that do that tend to succeed better than the parties who are sitting on their laurels. Well, you see this even in international politics, because I remember um, during the Trump election, one of the things that he was complaining about while campaigning was the fact that the CNN and I guess NBC 
camera crews would never turn around and show how big his crowd was because that kind of perception and image creation has a lot to do with how the viewing audience is going to perceive your likelihood of success. Yeah. And when people think, okay, this person's more likely to win, that's going to affect whether they go out and vote. A lot of people, if they think the person that they are opposing will win, they will not bother to go vote because it's like, well, he's won already. Yeah, that's true. So, no yeah. But for instance, I'll tell you, I'll tell you um, uh, in terms of reading or perceiving success based off of the image of, of participation, um, that can be uh, misleading at times because, for instance, in the last election, I'll tell you, um, there was a particular party that held a, a massive rally. It was a really well-attended rally. And um, that sort of gave the perception at that point that mm-hmm. that party might um, have done a little better electorally than they, in fact, did. Yes. Uh, and they, in fact, did not do very well. Uh, and so it was like, hmm. I mean, nobody was expecting them to have made a, 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 this particular party I'm discussing uh, to have made any major inroads. But just from the, the amount of um, participation, which uh, you saw at that and maybe another event, uh, there was this perception that uh, this, this, this group, they may do better than, um, than, 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 than we think. Yeah. Um, of course, of course, the, the, I suppose your political system comes into play because if you're spreading uh, votes across constituencies, uh, you could have a crowd that's 50,000 people strong. But if it's if, if amongst those 50,000, mm-hmm. uh, it's just one person too short in each of the constituencies when you spread it out, you will lose all of them. Right. Yep. The crowd is not always an indication of how much support you actually have. But we all know Antigua people love a session. So. Yes. In Antigua and Barbuda, um, you presently, I can only talk presently. I mean, others could talk historically about what would have been. I'll talk about what there is now. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you don't have uh, independent news media in Antigua and Barbuda. It's a, it's a tragedy, but you really don't have it. Uh, Observer does what it can in that regard. Uh, and Observer is and has been for a long time the, the, the face of what we would call uh, independent, non-aligned news media. In Antigua and Barbuda, there is not a, a, a well-stocked fraternity of independent news media houses. What you have is, at present, I can talk for the present, you have Observer, and then you have a number of politically controlled um, uh, uh, stations and outlets. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, our, our present leader of government um, has his own radio station. And what I have discovered is that it, it becomes very difficult to expect the general public to, to, to have an understanding of what's going on and to be accurately informed about what's going on if they are constantly bombarded by lies and exaggerations and, and propaganda, which is essentially the job of, of political media. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. It was very edifying and I look forward to seeing what you do in the future. All right, yeah. thanks so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Grassroots Radio. If you enjoyed the conversation, show some love and help spread the word. You can do that by subscribing on Apple, Google, YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Already subscribed? Consider leaving a five-star review. It helps other people find the show. 
If you have an idea for someone you want to see featured or a topic you want us to cover, let us know. DM us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at grassrootsANU or email us at thenewgrassroots at gmail.com. For more about NGR, visit us at thenewgrassroots.com. Until next time, this is Grassroots Radio.